0: listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Militantly Mixed podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Chumash and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. Hey y'all, welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, the busiest mixed-race bisexual polyamorous atheist comic book nerd cat mom podcaster in this podcasting game. This is episode 94, and I'm very excited about my guest this week, Teresa Stovall. She is the author of Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA, a mixed-race memoir. And we had an amazing conversation, one where I felt very kindred to my guest, which Happens often, but not always in the same exact way, and this was one where I felt there was a lot of parallels between my guest and I, despite the fact that we're not a mix the exact same way. I, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say. It was an amazing conversation. I think we ended up talking for well past the, the time that we stopped recording, and this is just a person that I think is an important example of maneuvering mixedness with confidence. And I also am really looking forward to getting a chance to reading her book. At the time I am recording this, I did just get her book in the mail this morning, or at least I, it had been delivered, but I finally got it from my apartment complex because I'm not going to get into the drama of what it's like to get a package at my apartment complex. So I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I haven't even had a chance to Kind of crack it at all. Uh, today was a really busy day, but I do hope that I'll be able to start reading it and maybe even be able to report on it a little bit as I go. Uh, just a few words of warning about this episode. We had some issues with sound, and I gotta say, I started using Zoom more often because since COVID, Zoom became the sort of acceptable form of communication for video calls and audio calls, and Zoom just does not work well for me. It's great for our social distancing hangout because we really don't have that much trouble there. Some of our people might have like connectivity issues on their side, but in general, for the social distancing hangout, we don't have trouble. But for some reason, whenever I've conducted a one-on-one interview for the sake of the show, the audio quality is just terrible. And there are some moments where you can kind of hear me talking back, you hear my voice sort of echo, or it'll kind of blare a little bit while she's talking if I, you know, acknowledge or say something alongside of her. And it's really unfortunate. I couldn't do much with it. I tried to clean it up as much as I could, but there are definite chunks of time where you either hear kind of a robotic sound or that little peaking audio, like a clipped sound or whatever. It's really frustrating for me. I-I I take good care of my audio clips so when the recording itself is damaged, I get real bent out of shape. And so I just want to apologize in advance for that. The other thing is I know on the show we often reference loving versus Virginia, or I'll say something like post-loving or pre-loving. For those of you who may not know what I'm referring to, here in the United States, it was illegal for interracial couples to marry until 1967. And the case that made that possible for us here in America was called Loving versus Virginia. The Loving family, that was their last name, was an interracial couple with a white male and a, well, she was actually mixed, but she was a a light-skinned black woman that had married, had kids, and they kept getting arrested for being married. And so they fought the state of Virginia for that. And ever since then, we have been able to legally marry interracially. Put it into context, I'm 42 years old. I was born 10 years after Loving versus Virginia made interracial marriage legal. So we do reference that in this discussion. And like I said, I know we talk about it fairly often on the show. But for those of you who might be picking up here and don't know what it's about, that is what it is about. There's so much about this conversation that I really love. There's so much that I will be taking away from this discussion specifically. and. Marinating on it, thinking about do I still feel the way I felt before we had the conversation that we had? You know, she really opened up some pathways for me in the way I think about some things um, that I'm kind of investigating right now, to be honest. And I love when that happens. I love when I speak to a guest that has an impact on my belief or my understanding of my own mixedness. It gives me something to research and, and investigate, and I'm really looking forward to that. So I will be sharing that with you here shortly. If you follow the the Militantly Mixed podcast group on Facebook, you may have seen that I was posting that I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to release the episode on time. I actually will be. I am recording this pretty late on Monday night. I, I've had a very difficult time with my schedule ever since COVID. I actually work a lot more during COVID than, um, than how it impacted most other people. Unfortunately, I am a person who deals with a lot of depression and anxiety, and it would have been a lot better for my mental health if I was able to stay home, but I don't have the kind of position that allows for that. So I've been working the whole time, but I've also been working multiple jobs. And, you know, if you've been with me for a while, you know my story. Uh, This weekend in particular was really difficult because I was balancing pretty much all five of the major things that I do, my two jobs, my podcasts, and this mask project that I've been doing. I've been making masks for donations and selling a few for people who have been uh, wanting them. And also my business that I'm trying to, or was planning on opening this year, but will be delayed until after things with COVID calms down. And I was just really overwhelmed. I'll be honest. I was really overwhelmed. And honestly, I could have used a break and I didn't take it. I didn't take much of it anyways. So I'm recording late at night tonight, right before it's about to go up because I... I was going to struggle sleeping if I didn't get it done. So it is going up. Uh, but what this has reminded me is that I, I was trying to, to manage my mental health with producing all the shows and doing all the things that I do by giving myself a hiatus every fourth month. So I was going to work January, February, March, and then take a break in April and work uh, May, June, July and take a break in August and then September, October, November, and take a break in December. That's kind of what I had been doing previous to COVID. Because of COVID, I actually didn't take that break because at the time I felt like I needed to not take that break. It it was more healing for me to do the show. Now that I'm back at both of my jobs physically, and because things are kind of picking up with a lot of other stuff that's going on, I think I am feeling very pressed. And I may need to take a hiatus soon. I already have episodes planned all the way up through July 7th, which is going to be the anniversary episode anyway, but I may either take a break for the remaining part of July and pick back up in August or I'll get back on my break schedule and take a break in August. I'm not quite sure yet. I know that between now and then I'm going to need a break and I may not always hit my schedule on time because of how things are, but I'm really trying to avoid doing that. I do apologize that, um, you know, sometimes the personal gets in the way of the podcast, but uh, I guess that is the nature of being an independent podcaster and doing stuff from home when you're trying to manage the rest of your life. But, um, you know, I didn't set out to do this because I thought it was going to be easy and I was never going to have challenges. Uh, It's just uh, every now and then it stacks up. And this last week, uh, life stacked up pretty hard on me. I'm really trying to fight against my depression again. More so because my anxiety is so high. I've had a number of migraines over the last couple months. I've had a really bad case of vertigo last week. And I can just kind of feel it stacking up. So I will keep you all posted on when I am going to take a break. And it may not be a whole month like it normally is. I may just take a couple weeks off. But I already have several episodes recorded between now and June 19th. And then I have a couple more scheduled between now and then. So we will have shows all the way up until... July 7th for sure, and then after that I think I will take a break. Keep you posted. Alright, I would like to shout out to, and I didn't ask them permission in advance, so I don't know, but let me just go initials in case. I want to give a shout out to uh, JK in New York for your very generous donation through PayPal this week. It came out of nowhere for me. It just pinged my phone and told me that there was a donation, and I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate the support and the love and, you know, Look to your mail in the next week or so. You'll have a little thing for me because I appreciate you so much. I wish I had asked you permission to shout out your name. I, I realize I didn't until right now when I was recording it. If you would also like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed. And that is a monthly sponsorship where you can donate as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish. And there are different reward levels depending on where you donate. I do have some people I still need to hear back from in terms of their t-shirt size so I can get your t-shirts out to you. But for the rest of you, I know life is what it is and people are just like, the t-shirt is the lowest priority right now. But if you're ready for it and you want it, holler back at me so that I can get those t-shirts out to you. And then for those of you who don't want to commit or cannot commit to a monthly sponsorship, but you do want to just put some coins in the tip jar, uh, you can do that with paypal.me slash militantlymixed. And again, drop it as anything as low as a dollar to as high as anything you wish. And uh, that will all go into... The main hustle media account, which ends up getting distributed back into the show in some way, shape, or form. I really, really appreciate it. It helps me keep it going. And given my chaoticness sometimes, um, having that to help me keep the show going and pay for everything that I need to pay for to keep it going is a major relief because I don't want to stop. I may need to pace myself a little bit more, but I definitely don't want to stop. And I know that for those of you who listen every week, it's important to you as well. All right, do I have anything else? I think that's pretty much it. I'm going to put in the show notes links to how you can pick up the Swirl Girl Coming of Race in the USA book by Teresa Stovall. It'll all be in the show notes. She also does mention it at the end of the show. But if you would like to purchase that book, you can go to teressastovall.com and that's T A R E S S A S T O V as in Victor, And you can pick up her book that way. Support your mixed-race brothers and sisters and cousins out there uh, in what they're doing. This is a memoir, so it is her story from her perspective, which is exactly what Militantly Mix is about. Our stories told by us, about us, for us. I, I reference it later in the episode, but one of my favorite, I don't know, phrases or mantras is for us, by us, about us. Because I don't think it's enough that stories are about us. I think they need to be told by us. And I think they need to be told with us in mind. For us, by us, about us. All right, without further ado, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the militantly mixed family, Teresa Stovall. Tell everybody what you're doing, and then we are going to get
1: into it. Hi, everybody. My name is Teresa Stovall. I am from Seattle, Washington. I'm a baby boomer. My mix is what I call hashtag bluish, B L E W I S H. I've been um, saying your, your Black hashtag bluish, <laughs> na- um, but also Native American. So I really got three ancestral strands. Okay. I'm really about ancestry. And I've been, I have a new memoir out, which is all about the evolution of my identity. And I've been really. I don't know, kind of outspoken about and publicly interested in issues around racism, anti-racism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, all my life, and on and off advocating specifically in mixed race contexts. That's been very on and off throughout my life, so it's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about what I call my militant mulatto phase, okay, of, of my life, stage of my life, more than a phase. But um, so I've been through a lot of a lot of that. Being a baby boomer, I was you know born during segregation, and came of age. I was almost grown when segregation was ended, mm. and you know, and when interracial marriage became legal throughout the United States. So I've a perspective that kind of spans decades, generations, and a lot of context. So I like to look at everything in context. The subtitle of my book is Coming of Race in the USA. Mm -hmm. So it's not just my story. It's against the backdrop of what the country was going through for the 40 year
0: period that I cover. Mm. So I've been I've been in I I consider myself an OG in these streets. I've been out there a long time. (laughs) So I'm I'm excited to be able to get into this conversation because predominantly we've covered sort of post loving Folks, you know we have a lot of mm-hmm. post-loving folks. I'm 10 yeah. years post-loving, so but my parents are not, and uh, my parents only have the past because they're both. My parents are biracial. My parents have the past because they were military families, and you know white men traveling to Japan bringing home a yellow bride. On the other side, my black grandfather went to England and brought home a white bride, and so they got that past. The difference is that my white grandfather didn't have to walk around with his uniform and his yellow bride. He could just exist and people would kind of know it, whereas my grandfather would have to walk around with his uniform and his white bride. So it's interesting to be able to get into what was happening beforehand for the sort of unsanctioned, you know, unlegally sanctioned interracial relationships that were happening. Before Loving, because it's not like mixed people just started in 1967. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but you're an author, like this isn't your first rodeo. You've, you've been at it. You have some anthologies, you're a poet and you've been writing for a while. Do you, is writing how you investigate your own mixedness or is it just anything, life in general? I've
1: been a writer since I was seven years old. Um, I've been a writer in different professional contexts my whole life, my whole career, I writing is just who I am. It's not even what I do, it's who I am. And I can commu- I'm a communicator. So I've built up different skill sets. I've gotten a lot of different experiences. I write about whatever is interesting to me. I am pretty much hundred percent black identified. Mm-hmm. That's really important to know. It's not, you know, like I tell you, the only thing I have big use about me is my appearance. Um, I am very, very black identified. And mm-hmm. so if you look at what my books are about, they're mostly about blackness other than other than my memoir. Mm -hmm. So um, I've written about mixed people, but not in a definitive way like this new book. I just, I write about either what I'm asked to write, given an opportunity to write, or want to write. So my my books are very eclectic. They span a range of topics. There's fiction and nonfiction, authored, co-edited anthologies, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Just kind of whatever either strikes my fancy or drops in my lap, basically. Mm -hmm. But um, so it's been very eclectic. So mixedness has not been central to everything i've done okay in terms of writing and publishing and things like that it's it's woven throughout in different ways sometimes Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's not so you know but it's it's a part of who i am and it's what i bring to the table it's a perspective i bring to the table i believe in owning everything that i am and i believe in synthesis i don't divide myself up i don't define myself by fractions i don't define Mm -hmm. myself by percentages I don't say I'm a third this and a fourth that and anything like that. That's, that's never made sense to me because that's, you know, just you're chopping people up. And if for people who like to define themselves that way, I understand it and I respect it. I don't, I don't think that the way I do it is the way everybody has to do it. It's just that doesn't work for me. What works for me is a synthesis. And that's what I say to people. I am the synthesis. And so you have to deal with me on those terms or we just won't deal with each other
0: because, you know, I don't, I don't chop myself up. Right, I'm I'm similar to you. I I guess for for a long time I did do the percentage or the fraction things because that was sort of how I was brought up. You know, like everybody always did that to me. But the fractions don't match my identification. Like you know, technically I'm a quarter black and a quarter Japanese and half white. But I don't know any of the white people in my family, but one person. And I grew up predominantly black. So like you, my face tells a different story, but my identity is is black because I grew up black and. You know, it wasn't until people started telling me I wasn't black (laughs) that I had to even confront whether or not that that was true. And I imagine, too, a time where you're growing up in segregation. I mean, well, I didn't grow up in segregation. I'm from Seattle. So, okay. so you weren't in it. Segregation existed.
1: Segregation existed and segregation defined the black experience in America, no matter where you live. Let's be clear. And racism and anti-blackness existed. And have never stopped existing and still exist everywhere in the United States, as Malcolm X said. His birthday was yesterday, May 19th. Shout out. Every, when it comes to racism in the U.S., south of Canada is south. So it's, it's very important to be clear. I wasn't, I didn't, I never experienced Jim Crow. Okay. Okay, I never went to the south. I live in the south now voluntarily, but I never experienced Jim Crow. Neither of my parents was, were from the south. Mm. So, but. It didn't matter because Jim Crow was simply the legal form and the most extreme form of government-imposed anti-Black racism in the Southern states. But the sentiment of it and the attitude of it and everything else about it was and continues to be and has never not been fully present and active everywhere in the United States, and to be honest, in most of the world. So again, context is essential to understand that. But I didn't grow up in a segregated environment. I grew up in a liberal Pacific Northwest, quote unquote, progressive environment. So it just showed up differently. The laws were not the same. And I
0: wasn't confronting Jim Crow segregation while I was growing up. So do you remember how anti-Blackness showed itself when you were growing up, where you were growing up?
1: Well, anti-blackness, I mean, it's no different than now. Anti-blackness has never changed. It's been here since 1619, and it's never, ever changed. It's never evolved other than to get stronger. Sometimes it's more subtle in some places. You know, sometimes it's more blatant. One thing, I choose to live in the South, and one of the things I like about the South is that it's blatant, it's unapologetic, and there's no pretense. There's no pretense. If you are blindsided by it in the south that's because you weren't paying your You're attention <laughs> right you can't be blindsided by it in the south so you know and that's that's my preference that's my preference but it it didn't show up any differently let's look at the context though so the, let's just look at the context of my book which is coming of race so it started on the day of Dr Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination, April 4th, 1968. And I was 13 years old and in the eighth grade. Okay, so coming of age, coming of race usually hits around adolescence. So that's preteen, adolescence, whatever you want to call it. And so how it showed up was on the one hand, I'd be looking at television, which was black and white at the time, black and white television of the South. The South was a faraway mystical place on one hand. I had no direct experience with it whatsoever. On the other hand, I understood that what was happening in the South wasn't limited to that place. But I didn't have, we didn't have language back then. We didn't have context back then. We didn't have social media or digital interaction back then. So you were limited to either what somebody told you directly or what you saw on the news. And of course the news until just a few years ago was controlled by news outlets. There was no Twitter, no Instagram, no anything else, no Twitch, you know? So everything was, was pasteurized, homogenized for public consumption, but you saw it, but nobody was explaining it in context. Nobody was sitting down and say, okay, here's the context of 400 years and why this is like that and how it shows up here is differently. So you're left on your own to navigate that the advantage that i had was at that same age at 13 in the summer of 1968 through my one of my girlfriends she was cousins with a trio of brothers siblings who were just teenagers or young adults at the time who started the first chapter Of the black panther party for self-defense outside of california and we started hanging out with them and so i received a very sophisticated starting at age 13 political education i was not a panther i was 13 years old but we were exposed to them they let us sit in on their political education classes we got to watch them work and strategize and protect themselves and work in the community and so That, and then also the book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X, which I discovered at that same time, started giving me a framework and a context. I mean, school certainly didn't, home didn't really. I mean, home gave me certain tools, but not the big picture of how do you frame racism and anti-blackness? So when you ask what it was like then, obviously in the Jim Crow South, it was much more blatant in your face, clearly. Mm -hmm. But again, I wasn't in that environment. It didn't show up. I promise you any differently than it shows up now, except for you didn't have the internet. So,
0: mm. you know, it just, it just really depends. I think, but to ask what racism looked like, it, I, I was really talking about like that. your experience, like what was, what, in your neighborhood, were you the strange mixed oh, no. family or was there a bunch of folks like you? And, and so you didn't necessarily like, did, did you or did you not have the kind of experience where you were like the, the area around you made you aware that you were not like other families.
1: So what I realized fairly recently in my life is that I had an extremely unique experience. Mm. So here's my extremely unique experience in a nutshell. So my mother's Jewish. Mother was born in 1923. I was born in 1954 during those pa- that, that time period. Jews were not white it is very important to be understanding Jews were not white in the United States when my mother was growing up or when I was growing up. Okay. So if you even refer to a Jew as white, you, uh, you, you, you had no credibility. Okay. It's very important. That's why, that's why context Context changes everything. Yeah. Context changes everything. They were not white. So my parents grew up together, African-American father, Jewish mother, first generation born. Her parents were Russian. They both came here in their youth. It's it, um, escaping the persecution of Jews in Russia. My parents grew up together in North Minneapolis, Think Prince, where black people and Jewish people could live, were allowed to mm-hmm. live, were allowed to live, where mm-hmm. they could live. not where they chose to live, where they could live, where they could. This live. is the night. this is 100 years ago, 100 years ago. So context is everything. My parents mm-hmm. grew up together. My father was my mother's oldest brother's best friend. OK? Mm. So my mother grew up in a very ethnic slash black context. Um, so that's important. And then my yeah. parents, I mean, they were seven years apart in age. You know, she had a little crush on him, but they didn't get together. They grow up. They meet up in California as adults. They get together. They end up in Seattle. Mm. Now, this is what's important and what I realize is very, very unique. And I am phenomenally privileged for a mixed race person in the United States. Phenomenally privileged. My father was a jazz musician. He wasn't famous, but he was a jazz musician. He was a jazz musician in Seattle with the cohort of Quincy Jones, Ray Charles, people like that. And Quincy Jones talks about part of what I'm getting ready to talk about right now in his interviews all the time and in his books. And so there was a whole group of black men who were jazz musicians, many just by night and on the weekend because they had day jobs, unlike Quincy Jones. And they deliberately dated, mated, married, interracially, most with white women and white in the Pacific Northwest means Scandinavian. So we're talking white, white, Aryan, white. Right, right. My dad was the exception with a Jewish woman. And this community was very close. They socialized together. They bought houses near each other in this pre-gentrified central area, which again was where people of color could live. And they formed alliances. And so we, they social, like I said, they socialized, they hung out, you know, all those things and the women, and I just learned this recently. So many of these wives, including my mother and her friends got together of these were black women or women of color, unless you, you know, and without, before birth control, before reproductive choice, obviously abortion was illegal. They synchronized their ovulation cycles so they could get pregnant around the same time and have mixed kids together so that the mixed kids could grow up with a sense of normalcy.
0: Wow. I call us jazz babies.
1: Radical. Yeah. Very radical and very brilliant. And it was the women. I don't know that the black man had anything to do with this. <laughs> they were okay? not. Worried I, I, mean, about I don't either. know. <laughs> well, I mean, if they, if any, I don't know who suggested it, I don't know that. I just learned about this three years, four years ago. Wow. So, and my mother's been passed away for 12 years. So, you know, and they created this community. I call us jazz babies, but, and this community extended to other cities. So when we would visit my parents' hometown of Minneapolis, we would hang out with other jazz baby mixed families with kids mm. my age. Los Angeles, the same thing. And those are the three cities where black, non-black race mixing were so prevalent. Mm-hmm. The other thing was being in that environment until I went to preschool in my, for, my early formative years, I, I believed I was normal. I believed everybody had a black dad and a mom who was white or Jewish. And so mm-hmm. by the time I realized that wasn't true, I didn't care. I didn't have any, I never had a sense of, well, I'm weird or it's going to be hard to fit in or anything. Mm-hmm. My proposition was then and remains to this day. This is me, love it, you know, very Jay Z, (laughs) love it or leave it, this is it. And like I said, this is the synthesis. You know, I don't top myself up for anybody, I don't change my identity for anybody. You like it if you can deal with it, cool. If not, that's fine, no hard feelings. But I think that that phenomenal, when I say it was phenomenally privileged to grow up in that Mm -hmm. community, our mothers created for us, because exactly. by that time, some of the fathers like mine were on the periphery or gone altogether. Some were still married and involved, you know, very. Mm-hmm. But th- it was the mothers that drove this. And it was the mothers who gave us. A, so we had a sense of and the, my neighbor was mostly black, but there were lots of mixed families and kids.
0: And so it just wasn't a thing. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I also have a unique position in mixedness because I grew up around mixed people, my mixed family. My parents are both biracial, so it wasn't until doing this show that I realized how much isolation there could be for some mixed children as they're as they're raising um, being. Where raised. did you grow up? Where did you grow up? Uh, half the time in Long Beach and half the time in Sacramento. So I'm fully it's Californian. California. Yeah. Yeah, fully Californian, yeah. and we were also military families, so we were always around other mixed people too, because yeah, that's the nature of military families. Similar to you, I come to the uh, Malcolm X autobiography between 13 and 14 years old, so like the summer between middle school and and high school, my freshman year, and that's when I that's when I started to realize militancy versus, like, when someone says what's your mom or what's your dad? When I was a kid, I'd be like, huh? Like, you know, I knew there was something. I knew other families weren't quite like ours, but Mm -hmm. I knew enough people that were like us that I also didn't feel weird. I didn't start feeling weird until you wake up at 14 years old and suddenly someone's telling you you're a little bit different. And that I didn't, I didn't, I'm so glad that I had the people around me that I had in childhood because- That would have probably sent adolescence into a very difficult (laughs) spin because you're already trying to figure out who you are at 13 or 14 years old. You don't need that extra bit. So that's interesting. One, I really love the idea, regardless of how it happens, that the women got together to like keep these kids to feel like they have a tribe. Like I think that's so amazing. Yeah, Um, I did too. They were brilliant, clearly. I absolutely love that. So if you're, you're growing up in this kind of environment where the mixedness is not the m- most obvious or prevalent part, I guess, of your experience, you know, how do you get into your, what you mentioned earlier, your militantly mulatto time period of your life? Now, I was a little bit older, uh, late teens, early 20s.
1: Um, a couple different things. I've, I've always been very comfortable with where I am culturally, And, uh, but at the same time, I was always thinking about and looking at things through the lens of mixedness and, you know, thinking about things and having conversations with myself in my head and other people, including the mixed people. I tried to get a bunch of mixed people together when I was in my, I think early twenties, I was an aspiring filmmaker and I wanted to get us talking about mixedness and nobody would say anything. And I just felt crazy. I was like, I had a film crew and I was like, okay. So no." they were like, well, talk about what? But these were all people who've grown up in my neighborhood. And I realized it wasn't, I mean, they might say something different now, but at the time, nobody felt that we didn't talk about it with each other. We didn't process because there wasn't a lot to process. That doesn't mean there wasn't anything going on, but um, yeah. you know, for whatever reason. So I was always interested in it and I was in a space when the details are in the book, but I was in a space where I was very aware of younger mixed kids. And I was always very concerned about what their parents were telling them, showing them, teaching them about their identities, and then the world in general. I knew that everybody didn't have the kind of cocoon I had, like you said, the tribe. And even with that, you're still aware of racism and colorism and everything else. And so, yeah, I mean, those things don't go away. You're just in a space where it's collectively shared and experienced. Yeah. So I started getting, I guess, what I would call militant probably, you know, 17, 18. And then in 1977, so I'm in my early 20s by now. Well, no, it was earlier than that because I was publicly calling myself mulatto and writing about it. And I went to the, I was went to the University of Washington to apply for college. And I put mulatto on my forms. But I was coming in through the the 70s, affirmative action, what was then called Equal Opportunity Program. And this is detailed in my book, but it's kind of funny. And so I'm like, mulatto, mulatto, mulatto. And they're like, this is great. But the black, my black guidance counselor is sitting down with me and says, well, you got to take that word off the form and put in black because your money is black. We don't have a mulatto department. There's a black department, an Asian department, Hispanic oh, wow. department, Native American mm-hmm. department, you don't, there is no mulatto money for you to go to school. You were admitted <laughs> as a black <laughs> person. Your money is black. Change this form. <laughs> okay. So I was like, and I was like, oh, I felt like a tra- I mean It's all, you know, very dramatic in the book because I was very young, but that was really where I was. It wasn't anti-black because at the time saying you were mixed and I was, I was playing with the word mulatto because I was young And I'm still a political radical. I liked, I wasn't uncomfortable with mulatto. I knew its whole history and everything else. But I also understood that it was, I mean, technically, I'm not even really a mulatto because Jews aren't white, but it still was a word. I mean, I grew up with mixed. I don't really deal too much with biracial, but I grew up with mixed. Mixed was very inclusive to me. And I grew up with a lot of different kinds of mixes. So, you know, biracial to me is very, very specific and limiting. But, um, so Mulatto, I was kind of playing with it and I was like, I was always looking for a word that told my story. That's been my quest, a single term that told my story as quickly as possible to shut down questions, right? Right. So, you know, here I am at 65 and I wrote this book and one of the reasons I wrote the book is I told somebody I'm not answering any of the questions since I read the book. You know, if you, if you got questions, I've aged out of having to answer those questions. But I still get the questions every single day. Right. Every single day. So, you know, I still get the questions, but I'm like, now I'm like, look, there's a book. You can read it. I'm out. But.
0: That, that, makes that, so <laughs> that makes me so happy. That makes me so happy. You just like read the book. I got tired. Read the book, honey. I, you know, <laughs> I'm tired.
1: So, so the militant part was really, well, I am a lotto and you will deal with me. And it was just me being very assertive, you know. And then what I'll, the other thing that happened was in around 19, 1977 or so, it was a group that was formed in Seattle. It was a Jewish woman who had a son by a black man. I don't know where the father was and she formed a group called concerned citizens for interracial children and they're they were this is the late 70s they were trying to get a census category for mixed Mm. people a census category for mixed people so my mother told me about so i joined the group Um, i was profiled in jet magazine with my brother and they had a poem of mine in there and everything and i just literally the guy who wrote the story and did the pictures I'm Facebook friends with him. And I posted the picture somewhere and I was like, did you take this? He's like, I don't remember. I said, well, this is your byline. He's like, oh my God, I remember that. So he's my Facebook, he's been my Facebook friend for like seven, eight years. And I knew it was him, but you know, he uses a slightly different name. So I was part of this movement to get a census category in the 1970s. And I left the group for reasons, um, you know, that aren't important to the census category. But then as I explained to people, I was in another magazine in the year 2000, the first census category to explain why I didn't check that box. Okay. So oh. I don't check the mixed box. I think it's a very, it was very, very, I think the intentions may be okay. But, um, and I think also, cause I'm an older generation, um, when I tell, and I raise my kids who are you know, they're black. But I raised them and I said, you can check whatever box you want when the only people experiencing the consequences of the tallying of the data is you. And the other time you check Black. Mm -hmm. So you check Black. I check Black on the census, people like Barack Obama, Halle Berry, because we understand how the data is tabulated and used. And when you check check mix, that data is used against Black communities. It is used to take resources away from Black communities. Mm -hmm. This is a proven fact. I've interviewed the people at the census. Okay. I've interviewed the people in that department, okay? Th- that wasn't their intention, but they put mixed people, I still am going to write about this on my blog, they put mixed people in a very bad position with the census. Mm. It's, a, it's a basically a no-win situation. There's nothing wrong with checking it, but I always say people, yeah. you check it, but be very, very aware of how the data is used. The data may or may not impact you, but it may impact many, many people. You never will meet. But it takes resources, schools, hospitals, fire departments, ambulances, you know, community centers, social services away from communities that need them.
0: Most mixed people don't know that. Nobody's told them that. I didn't. And I know that this time around, I felt strange about the census, but I didn't know what. Well, this is the third time.
1: I also don't like the language. It just says what I call throwaway language, some other race. I'm
0: like, yes. Yeah. I I don't like other, so, I don't like some other. Well, I, some like other, I mean,
1: other, I don't have a problem, but some other races I'm like, this is the third time you've used this. It's problematic language because it's basically telling you we, we're just, you know, you're just, we're just throwing you out. I mean, we're not going to really, you know, so I think it's important to know that the, the, again, look at the Look at when you're going to check a form, if you're a mixed person of any kind, it's fine to waive your, your, Pride flag, but before you check a box, you unfortunately we're put in a position. It's a we're in a racist country where you want to be smart and strategic about how you yeah. check a box because you want to know what's going to happen with that data when it's tabulated, when it's analyzed, when it's applied right. to the distribution of whatever it's going to be applied to. So I lobbied for the for the category, but I
0: don't I don't use it. That makes sense, though. I mean, because you have the background knowledge to understand what happened to it. I Yeah, I wanted to talk to people about this, but I, I couldn't find anybody immediately that understood. I, I didn't have the connection directly to anybody in the census. So it's nice to, to hear, at least gives me a jump off points for my research to go further into it going forward. But it is important to to be thinking about adding services not subtracting services.
1: Well, at least, yeah, at least, again, I I don't think that was their intention. And we lobbied for a long time to get it. And we finally got it, you know, 2000, 2010, and now 2020. But you've got to be careful, you know. And that's the thing about how institutionalized racism works overall. It's not always Mm -hmm. consciously deliberate. It's not always aimed at you to destroy you. So you always have to be alert and... Do diligent and do your homework and, and ask questions. I think we have to ask questions like how is this data used, and what happens if I check black versus if I check mixed or depending on your mix what you check right but yeah, that was so, my militant so, phase
0: <laughs> that's an interesting thing because it's got me thinking because i am I am mixed race with black, Japanese, and white I don't really. I don't side on the, on the thing of whiteness because I don't have a connection to whiteness besides that it's part of my ethnicity. I know that where I live now is predominantly Japanese area. So benefiting the predominant group in terms of this neighborhood probably makes more sense. But everywhere else in the world that I go, I could impact blackness more if I were to make that kind of assessment. So it's interesting because now I got a whole nother thing to start to look at and think like, all right, who am I subtracting from <laughs> like the Asians or the, or the black folks? Um, Absolutely. That's Absolutely. interesting. Uh, it, racial it gives, math. Racial math. Yeah. Racial math. Mm-hmm. I've never heard those words put together, but I'm <laughs> down right now. That's interesting. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I, sure. I knew that. So the first year that I was able to fill out the sentences uh, in 2000, I was still living with my family. So they, they took care of that. In two thousand and ten, I was an a, you know adult and I owned my first house and things like that. And oh. at that particular time, I I checked every box because I wasn't going to let that little some other mixed thing like right right right. I, I I don't like that. I don't like anything that I I don't I I prefer two or more race or two or more something like that. I don't like some other or some you know I don't like that. I don't like other. And then this time around. But I was also flipping about it. It was 2010. It was my first adult census. And I was just like, oh, an opportunity. Boom, boom, boom. You know, I don't even think how much information may have been available on the internet at that particular time about it. Now I was listening to more discussion about it. I understood the impact stuff, but I didn't, I didn't know like what was the best call for a mixed person. And I really didn't even think about just like, this is not one of those moments that it's a fight for choose one. Now I'm, now I'm disregarding this half of the family or disregarding that half or something like that. It was, it was literally about where's the money going to go. Yes. And and who's going to be taken care of. These Um,
1: are complicated things for each one of us. And you know, it might vary. You might be in another situation where, you know, you are emphasizing one ancestral strain versus another and you're in a different situation because you're what's called a multi-generational mix, mm-hmm. like my kids are. If you have one or two biracial parents, right? And that's see, that's a whole nother experience. And so, you know, I had to learn about that online basically, and said to my kids, Well, okay, I think you guys are MGMs and da 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 da. You know, but before that, they said they're mixed, and I'm like, No, I'm mixed. You're not. So <laughs> that's all in the book, really.
0: It, I cannot you know, wait to find. Get-
1: I was like, No, you're not. You have three black grandparents. Let's not mix, (laughs) you know, but but what's interesting is they are both extremely, they're every bit as ambiguous looking as I am. Mm -hmm. They have different coloring from each other. I have a son and daughter in their twenties, late twenties, and they're both writers. And as my daughter wrote in a very beautiful essay about her ambiguity and how people deal with it, the first sentence, she says, since I present as biracial, I am functionally biracial.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Functionally. But Irish. again,
1: my thing is you're light skinned black people, you got three black grandparents and not.
0: I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>
1: <laughs> right. I got right. So, you know, that that again, you and I know in the in the crevices and the nuances of this, this is all new. Where we're looking at your generation versus my generation and my you and my kids' generation, where we're looking at and the and the greater world is just like you know, mixed people, whatever. And, or whether, and, you know, Pew did a little study. I know you know about this. I think it was about five years ago now. And they talked to about 1,550 mixed people of different kinds. Very, very, very small cohort. And I don't know how they chose them, but it was interesting within that cohort, black and white, the black-white combo, or more specifically my combo, which is black, they they don't tease out Jewish, so black, white, Native American... Is, is way down on the list percentage-wise. Um, Native American white is the highest, I think. That was, again, just 1,500-ish really? people. Yeah, it's a, you should look it up or I'll send you the link. It's Where did 1,500-ish. Um, I've blogged about it. It's 1,500-ish people. But, but the point is that, um, you know, this is, this is the first time in my life, and I've been paying attention the whole 65 years, that there are public, ongoing, sustained conversations in this country about mixed race. People, appearance, identity, dynamics, colorism, ambiguity, all of those kinds of things. And I'm thrilled and delighted that we're having the conversations. I'm a believer because I'm a communicator in having conversations. I'm a believer, you know, I'm guided by the James Baldwin quote, nothing, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Mm-hmm. And I believe facing things involves communicating and sharing our truths and not trying to persuade each other or debate i don't debate with people i'm just like right. this is my perspective and i'd like to know yours right you know so that we can start to appreciate our differences so we can find
0: our common humanity that was one thing that doing the show has taught me because we're, we're nearing two years at this point in the beginning i had very specific mixedness i understood my mixedness <laughs> mixedness, in, like I didn't even realize I thought of it as like a monolith. And it was just like, you know, we're mixed. It's all the same. And as I start to talk to more people, I'm like, wow, I was making the same mistakes that monoracial people do because I had a very specific upbringing within my mixedness. And now that I've talked to people from all different kinds of, of mixed combinations, and all different types of environments that they were raised and people from all over the world and stuff like that. You know, things have opened up so much for me. You can even chart sort of my growth in certain areas where I may say in an early episode something and then I finally talk to someone from that category and then three episodes later, I'm an expert on that category because I've sat there and I'm like, oh, I was wrong. I need to dig into this, which I think, like you said, it's important to have these conversations. I think one thing that I've learned that I think is of of real value for me was the power of the words that people use to identify themselves. Mm. Mixed is very powerful for me because like you said earlier, I find it very inclusive. I think it doesn't leave anybody out like on the face of it. It doesn't leave anybody out. Even though here in America, a lot of people always assume mixed meant black and white biracial. Um, I am not biracial. So when somebody calls me biracial, I do need to correct them and say, Oh no, I'm mixed. And then they look at me like, yeah, that's what I said. No, because what you said was a little bit more closed off because that's not my situation. So h- hearing the power in like why the word mixed was so important to me, because I've gotten emails from people who say they don't like the term and they wonder why I use it. In your case, when, when you mentioned militantly mulatto, I know that there's people who struggle with that term.
1: But it's a mulatto is an extremely triggering loaded word.
0: It can be. Yeah. It really well, no, it is, it,
1: it, It's, it's like the N word. I mean, there's certain words that are just inherently triggering and inherently loaded. And they, but like I tell people, listen, I, if I use it, you know, in a context that I'm using it in a context, mm-hmm. I
0: mean, you know, but I use it deliberately. Again, I'm a, like you, I'm a strategic communicator. The way you said it also indicated to me there was power in the word for you. So the way you said it wasn't triggering because I could hear the ownership, right? I Mm. can hear like Mm -hmm. my identity is is in this. And so it's comfortable to hear or was when my grandmother, when I was younger, my Japanese grandmother would refer to herself as Oriental and I would flip out, you know, like, Fifteen-year-old, twenty-year-old, even thirty-year-old Charmaine would be like, "Grandma, that's not what we say. Like, there, you know, it's a rug or a dish, not a person. It's racist and stuff uh-huh. like that." But from her perspective and, and from her time, that was her term. And that was even an though absolutely like, her term, like even that was though absolutely cringe, her term. It didn't make her cringe. So 40-year-old Charmaine, 42-year-old Charmaine could have that conversation with my grandma now and be like, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm 42. Oh, I thought you were like 25. (laughs) No, because I said I'm 10 years after loving. You did say that.
1: (laughs) I'm just looking at you and I'm like, so she's a kid.
0: I always say black don't crack and Asian don't raisin. I I
1: was going to say, you got don't crack on two out of three. So you were, you look, yeah, girl, you look good. I'm waiting to see what happens
0: because the Asians are 20 years old. you really do look very young. Yeah, I I get carded still. That's all right, girl. Own it because one day
1: it'll stop and you'll miss it. (laughs)
0: Because I might go the way of the Asians where all of a sudden I hit like 90, but I look 275. I don't think it, no. Asians do this weird thing. Asians do Do this weird thing. Yeah, because you you look really young for a really long time, and then suddenly you're (laughs) hunched over and hella old.
1: But You take care of yourself.
0: You take care of yourself. So let me ask you a question. Sure. Have you had your parents on the show? Uh, My father is dead, and we didn't have a good relationship. But um, my mother and I actually stopped talking about three years ago. Also, we didn't have a good relationship. I do talk about them. You know, yeah, like, I got uh, it. I got same it. Same like you. Like, I'm gonna own all my stuff. And yeah. the thing is, you know, I had I had really abusive parents, but I had a really amazing oh. Japanese grandmother. Like she was okay. she was my she was her and my my baby aunt, my mom's youngest sister, were the two that really took care of me from the time I was fifteen. They got me mm-hmm. out of the bad environment that I was in. And okay. um but my blackness was well established by then. So I had I became I, I was Black until I was 15 or 16, and then I became Japanese mixed. Yes. And then I kind of went through that in my late teens, early 20s, and then I, I started to become a mixed person versus a Black person who was also Japanese. Okay. So, like, so like my words have changed over the course of the time. What hasn't changed is that I'm militantly mixed, and so that is how, like, that's that's my... I don't I hate the Like, I don't know what to call it. It's how I approach people. It's how I exist. You're not going to you're not going to tell me what my identity is. I'm going to tell you I'm going to grant you permission to acknowledge (laughs) my stuff. You don't get to tell me what you get, you know, that kind of stuff. Like I feel I can see it and feel it when I hear you talk. And I'm excited that there is other people out there that feel this because I talk to a mixed bag of people. Like some people are really insecure in their mixedness all the way through really confident. I get the whole gamut. I get the people who want it so bad, but have never been able to talk about it. And they finally get to, you know, it's run the gamut. All I know is that that sense of community, that sense of like somebody else just looks at you and for a split second, yes, you know, like there was a guy at a Japanese and black event at the Janna Museum here in LA, Japanese American uh, National Museum. He Wakanda forevered me. He gave me the Wakanda salute from across the room. I damn near started crying. Because it was like another black and Japanese person looked at me from across the room and we, you know, like we had, and that, that sense of like, we, even if we're not mixed exactly the same, that, that, that sense of village or tribe that I like to talk about. I feel with everybody that I talk to through the show, regardless of where they're at in their mixedness. And I think that's, that's the
1: thing. Well, that's what I liked about your show. And I listened to a lot of the episodes and I said, oh my gosh, she's a young me. But, and I mean that in the way that you're right, but we're very, that we have that similarity, but I, I really liked that about your show. Um, I said, okay, because one of my things and I, I, this is the thing that seeing, you know, I'm in a ton of mixed groups on Facebook mm-hmm. and, um, I learn a lot. I'm usually the oldest one in the group. And, you know, I have this very particular experience of being a jazz baby and all that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. And I learn a lot just looking at and paying attention to what the other, what the younger people are saying. But one of the things that I don't like, sometimes I speak up about it, sometimes I don't, in the groups, especially with mixed people who are in an earlier part of developing their mixed identity and I get it because mm-hmm. you know is they're they're very close minded and if you you know you you're mixed you're not black you're not you know and a lot of us mm-hmm. who are black and black identified like they're not exclusive also if I'm mixed black. and I'm black they're, they're they they do not cancel each other out they don't they've been around for, for since sixteen, nineteen since people mm-hmm. since the rapes enslaved African yeah. women got off the boat
0: right you know and start popping out
1: the babies so let's not right. you know yeah the whole narrative is you know that they're not exclusive and so there are a lot of mixed race people who are some are anti black some are just so their definition of and i was like that at 17 18 for a okay. minute For a minute, (laughs) I was for a minute. Although I wasn't criticizing other people, I would challenge them sometimes. Mm. But I wasn't. But not in a. I don't think in a negative way. Maybe they'd have a different perspective. But I was like, well, wait. We're mixed. We're mixed. We're mixed. We're mixed. We're mixed. We're mixed. I think part of that though is healthy. That's what I like about you. You're a fabulous host, by the way. Thank you. And about the show. No, really, you're outstanding. (laughs) And. and that being a host is a good host is hard work and and I and so you know this my thing is I believe you and I are kindred spirits in this is there's no right or wrong way I'm not here to judge anybody else's journey here's my story now you tell me yours let's share like I love that Wakanda story that's insane I love that
0: I can feel it with you Mm because I'm looking at I mean, I used to getting that like you know i mean and so, not that um, specific mix black folks own right. me and i appreciate it right. There's very right. little right. time when a black person reminds me of my mixedness. not that it hasn't happened it definitely has right. yeah. um but the ownership of that black people have for me makes me feel good it makes me feel seen but mm-hmm. it just hit different because it was someone who was also black and japanese yes. and someone who's dealt with the same kind of anti-blackness, probably, because of being Japanese, you know, stuff like anti-blackness,
1: that. Like, anti-blackness, asianness anti-mixedness, or just
0: kinds well-meaning people, identity
1: policing you, mm-hmm. sometimes even your family. And I write about that yep. a lot in my book is, I you know, it isn't it. always coming from a horrible, horrible place, but it's still like, that's why I'm glad. I love seeing, and you're the next generation. I love that you are so strong and so eloquent in how you express it and so inclusive. That just that's why I want I'm so excited to be on your show because I'm like, okay, we're we're kindred spirits yeah. and mm-hmm. you you're not narrow, you know, not one of those mixed people who are like it's totally no, you can only be mixed and you can't. And I just want to say those babies, I'll say, baby, you're young. Hopefully you're young. They're not young. That's a whole another issue. I'm like, you know what? That's your thing. I I respect. I'm not gonna argue with you but don't project that over here yeah that's like the people who come to you and they're like i'm an eighth this and a fourth this i'm like sweetie that's great racial math you know you know so so yeah mixedness i think is incredibly complex and diverse Mm -hmm. and i believe our superpower is in our diversity i mean just look at you and i yeah we have differences we have similarities but it to me it would be a disservice to everybody for us to pretend to ignore the differences or to view them as negative or problematic versus saying, let's put all the dishes on the buffet. Shoot, right. uh, you know, as, as a metaphor, let's bring it all in and, yeah. and let's, let's, you know, let's look at it together and appreciate how, how incredible this is and what we do bring to the world. Yeah.
0: I like the idea of. I have the curiosity about people that aren't exactly my mix. I want to know, okay, even if we're mixed the same, how, do, how were you received? How did you receive others? Like, how yes. do you view monoracial people? How do you view other mixed people? Like, that kind of stuff is interesting because I think I didn't understand it until I started doing the show. That you could have these kind of nuance. Like, I guess in general, I understood that there was nuances to this thing but until you actually start talking to people and finding out why, why is there nuance in play? Yeah. That kind of thing, you know, answers a lot of questions and and it helps, um, I don't know, like get it. Like I just want to get it. I just want to understand us, you know. That's awesome. I think that can be your life work. So one of the things I
1: discovered in writing my book, which took five years, is that I had to pull all of it out of my brain and out of my psyche and lay it down and observe it from a distance to then shape it into something that was suitable for public consumption. And most of the people who read my book don't know me and will never meet me. Mm -hmm. So all they'll know about me is, you know, this book or anything else I write or have out there in the world. And so what I realized that was interesting, um, I have what I call a trifecta and I wrote about it in my blog uh, recently. I wrote an open letter to Rashida Jones Mm -hmm. and the the trifecta is you're mixed. So my life is defined by the trifecta. I'm mixed. I am on the extreme end of being light skinned and I am phenomenally racially ambiguous looking. That to me is the trifecta. Not everybody falls on the trifecta, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, my son is extremely light skinned, unless he has a 10, green eyes, was born a blue eyed blonde. Okay. Um, my daughter has dark hair and eyes. And <laughs> in our family, it's more melanin, but it's still relative. And, you know, even when she tells people she's black, they're waiting for her to tell them what else. So, and again, very, very ambiguous looking. So what I realized is that, the predominant factor in my life has been the ambiguity. It has been more of a, an issue in my life. My my mixedness and my identity and how I define it and work it through the world is fairly fixed and solid and really has always been the light skin part. To me, there's no, there's not too much there that's unpredictable or that's going to surprise me. I have what I call, you know, people are like, well, you know, how do you feel about light skin privilege? I said, Well understand my perspective, you have to look at me. I have a twenty-four carat all access pass. I'm in the Delta Lounge and I'm flying first first class. I'm getting on the plane before anybody else. Let's be real clear about where I fall on that spectrum. But that's a given. That's a given. Like it in my life, it doesn't there's nothing there's very little that's gonna surprise me in that area that I'm not that's gonna go, oh wow, that's new. Or something like that. And light skin privilege isn't specific to being mixed or to being ambiguous looking. Okay. So you right. can have all three of those things like a few of us do. You can have two out of three. You can have just one. Um, but my life has really been, and I had to really analyze this whole, the whole time I was writing the book. I would say the, the, the dominant factor is ambiguity because every person I encounter, even at 65 years old, in my life, anywhere in the world, either it's what are you, or they assume I'm what they are. And then we've got to, un- because it's, <laughs> when they assume what I am, it's never what I am. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- then there's the unpacking of that. And I write about that in a lot, a lot of detail in the book. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so, but that, that has taken up more bandwidth in my life mm-hmm. than being racially
0: mixed or than being very light-skinned and with straightish hair. Right. That kind of opened up a big old garage door for me just <laughs> Because I feel I feel very similar and I hadn't articulated it before what you just said just broke open my brain a little bit because I think that is that is the thing. Like, I love being mixed. I love talking about mixedness. I love engaging with mixedness. But really, I am governed by the ambiguity as I as I maneuver the world, you know. And you, and you look at the bandwidth it takes up.
1: Mm hmm. Even when, you, about it. even when you're going into a situation and you forget what you look like. But I have so many friends who said to me, you really forget what you look like, don't you? And I'm like, yeah, I do. <laughs> I do. I often do, right? Don't you? Because do you, you can't visible? walk around thinking about that all the time. Right. And the thing about being ambiguous looking, and tell me if you agree with me, is that you can't predict it or control it. So some people, you know, especially I think black people who are visibly black unambiguously ambiguously black just all they see is privilege but i'm like listen it's not always privilege you come with me to an airport mm-hmm. come with me to an airport right yeah um or you know whatever i mean i can again it's detailed in the book but and that's just a few key instances and they're right. you know on any given day my my brother and i my kids and i we just compare notes so i'm sure you do too you can't you don't know what somebody thinks you are which means you don't know how they're gonna act you don't know if you're in danger you don't know if they're gonna want to date you marry you have a kid with you i'm sure you've been through all of this i have i so. I, mean, I met man on the second or third date they're like let's have a kid and i'm like well clearly that's not like a personal thing that <laughs> really like me and they're blatant about it mm-hmm. they want to t- yeah. That's what they wanted. It's like, you know, can you give me some jeans and I can just go out, you know, my kid can have a higher status in life than me. And I, but I'm a young woman and I'm looking for love and I'm thinking, what? What? Yeah. Right. So all of those things. But then when you're encountering people and sometimes you're just trying to get to know another human mm-hmm. and they either, and you and I know, and we're hyper aware of the question. We're, we're aware of the question before it's asked or if it's never asked, mm-hmm. we can smell it. Yeah right? We can see yeah. it. We can see it before they're thinking it. And then they're like, so you're, they did. Mm-hmm. Now, what do people think you are? I'm looking at you because I would think,
0: I would think you were Filipina. So on the west coast, I'm Filipino. Or <laughs> on the Mexican. west coast, I'm Filipino. Right. On the east coast, I'm Puerto Rican. Or Puerto Dominican. Rican. <laughs> or we, we gotta do a thing about why we all look Puerto Rican. Can we, can we do that together, girl? I know. I I don't understand it. I don't I don't know if everybody is destined to eventually look Puerto Rican or Dominican. No, go, no, that, as, yes, no, no. So.
1: Puerto Ricans are mixed. though. They're, it's a whole where your ships landed and rape and all that. But I'm I love that. Yes, so I grew up on the west coast, so I was Chicana. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or Asian, Some I still don't understand how people think I look Asian, but that's a whole other thing. get something unexpected, like a black woman, this is five years ago now, I was buying a computer at Best Buy, right? And a black woman just walks up to me. The other thing that's so interesting to explain to people who aren't abused is people just walk up to you. They do. Right? They just do. They just walk up to you, out of the blue, out of context, you were just living your life. Again, not thinking about what do I look like and what are people going to think I am? Because you would be psychotic. You'd be unable to function. And she goes, you're Samoan, right? And I don't know. This. I'm like, what? That's and she goes, you're funny. Samoan, right? I said, no. <laughs> I am not yeah. Samoan. Yeah. But that's all I said. Now, I used to give people long explanations. But I'm from Seattle. And I went to school with Samoans. So sometimes I can see what you mean. Now, I don't do that anymore because I'm yeah, old. Yeah, no. Uh, it's too much yeah. labor. <laughs> too much, too much. I said, I just said, no. And I used to also say, no, I'm... Right. I was very proactive. I am this. Yeah. And I said, no. And that's all. And then she said, well, you look just like my friend. And then you could see her struggling because I wasn't yeah. telling her what I was. So that wasn't helping her. And she said, well, you look so much like my friend. And she's said, oh, and I said, that's really nice. People are different all over the world. <laughs> my <laughs> sweetie. I'm yeah. not the bowing, got... yeah. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yes. Yeah. So like I said, for me, I realized in unpacking my whole life and identity for public consumption that of the, of the trifecta mixedness hasn't been that big a deal. Like I said, the light skinness is, it is what it is. But I think, you know, people who have various levels of it, you're not really going to be surprised much once you're an adult. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Because you could, if you, if you do an analysis of all the things that happened to you as a result of just that. They're pretty predictable and there's patterns Mm -hmm. versus the ambiguity. So for me, the ambiguity has been the most, I would say, the most challenging.
0: So the ambiguity being the most challenging, as we come to the end of the show, what would be your favorite part of being mixed then? Or is it the same thing? I wouldn't have chosen the ambiguity.
1: Um, My (laughs) favorite, I mean, really, I, you know, I I, I understand I mean, like everything else, I understand it in a bigger in a bigger picture, and I'm not upset about it. Mm-hmm. But I apologize to my children. You know, I, when they I were understand. growing up, I said I would never. Your know, light skin, fine, whatever. Your hair, fine. I said, but I would never have wished this for on anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's. I'm not coming at it from a tragic point or even a complaining point. Right. But it's just uh, the the. More like, it's the bandwidth that it requires right. throughout your life in every situation. Right. It's
0: just a pain. It, is. it really it's is. So much. An, it's every day. Like we're talking about. Not a day that goes by. Not a day. It doesn't come up in some way, shape or form.
1: Exactly. So you can't, you know, just your, can I just go to the, before Corona, can I just go to the store or just, you know, buy a dress or whatever. And you're looking at me and you're like, do I deal with it? Do I not? That. Um, what has been the best part? My favorite part, I'll tell you my favorite part. My favorite part is is when I realized, so I, I've never done a DNA test. I don't really feel the need. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I grew up knowing that, you know, I'm half Jewish. It's interesting if I show you a picture of my mother's parents, my Jewish grandfather uh, has very black features. He has mm-hmm. lips like Jay-Z. My mother's youngest sister had an Afro with kinkier hair than anybody on my father's side of the family. So, um, and then the African-American and native American, and I don't know which tribe on purpose. They don't want to get into tribal politics and some of them are very anti black and I don't, I can't deal with all that. It's too much for me. So, but, but I deal with ancestry. I'm somebody who part of my, Daily life is honoring and interacting with my ancestors. And so I feel very honored and I've always enjoyed knowing what I call the braid because there's those three groups, Jews and mm-hmm. black people and native Americans. I love and obviously mixed in the African American you know, massive. But um, the braid of it is I come from three groups of people who throughout all of their histories have faced nonstop ongoing genocide persecution and oppression mm-hmm. so to be a result of that of those three groups which refuse to be destroyed mm-hmm. and which refuse to be erased gives me incredible sense of grounding
0: and of purpose and of power i love the idea of calling it a braid because a braid is stronger Right. I, I am a braid.
1: I am the braid. And, and so I don't, you know, like I said, I'm very unambiguously black identified culturally in every other kind of way sure. for the most part. Although I don't have a black card. Like I tell people, I don't have a black card. You know, I'll, here, here's the things I don't like or do or know about, but it's cool. I, you black know. cards
0: should be regional, though. I just want to put that out there. Black cards they should, be, should regional? be regional. Yes, Absolutely. I, are, my
1: thing is, I just tell people, that's why I pulled a mixed card, like, I'm mixed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't play spades. I don't play cars. I couldn't enjoy watching you, no bid bidwis. Nope, but here I am. I could do talk as as black as it gets, baby. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I don't feel any pressure. I'm like, hey, let me, let me pull that card. But um, that's really my favorite part, Charmaine, my favorite part. And that's why I believe, regardless of your, of the history of your ancestors of Complex relationships. My father was, like your parents, very problematic. That's the nice word. Is, is understanding your ancestry, not so much as personal relationships. You know, we are all right. on healing journeys. Yeah. But understanding the power of their journeys. Understanding that these are the ones who survived. Yeah. Whatever was put on them as people. And you have similar strains, you know, especially with the Japanese and the Black. Mm-hmm. And so, and then there's whatever the British means for you,
0: but uh, it's it gets complicated I, yeah. for
1: me sometimes. <laughs>
0: it's complicated because you got all kind of, collo- you know, damn, y'all, the whoa. colonizer yeah. and the colonized. And it's we are, we are, mm-hmm. but, but again,
1: synthesis. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I've never said this before, but in talking with you, it occurs to me in some way, there's nothing more quintessentially American. Right. I agree. Than to be the colonizer and the colonized, right? I, I mean, you know, in that way, I think that's what we have to bring to to add to the world is a perspective. I don't get into the whole, oh, we're so special and unique, but there, but specificity. I'm big on specificity. I want you to honor, I want you to tell me your ancestry and then where you grew up and how you like you've done because now I feel like I know things about Charmaine that I couldn't have known otherwise I right. because if I didn't assume if I assume that I would be either wrong or whatever, I'm not honoring your specificity. Right. So I think if we all come with our specificity, regardless of how we feel about it, you know, or anything like that, then I think that's a point of power. And I think that can go a long way toward giving us the foundation to fight racism, because ultimately that's what I want to contribute to the world. How can we, utilize who we are and utilize the power of our ancestry and our stories to ultimately fight racism because if we're not doing that to me it's all just air
0: right i agree well thank you so much for coming on the show i am just awash. wash this conversation has just washed over me it has made me feel kind of warm and uh, I feel understood and seen, also in a way, like in a camaraderie kind of way, and like a tribal kind of way. I mm-hmm. I really really appreciate you coming on the show. I'm so glad. I can't wait to get my copy of the book. I didn't I didn't get the PDF version because I wanted to get the I wanted to be able to feel and touch the the real book. So as soon as it gets here, oh, um, thank I'll, you. I'll start reading it. Why don't you tell everybody? where they can find the book, how they can find you, Instagram, your socials, whatever. And then I will also put all that information in the show notes so that people can click on those links when, uh, when okay. Well, first I want to say, thank
1: you. Like I said, I'm a, i am I am a huge fan of yours. I listened to several episodes and I was like, Oh wait, this is this young girl. Okay. 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 <laughs> and I tell people, especially in I USA, you know, I'm hard to impress. I really <laughs> am. I am an OG in these streets. I am hard to impress and I'm impressed. And so I, I, like I said, I'm impressed with the show, the guests, how you talk with people, and you don't like you said it's not a traditional interview. So I feel all the things that you're feeling, and just really honored, really honored to be here. So my book, my memoirs—I call them, my hot new memoir because I'm in marketing <laughs> mode now <laughs> nice. is, uh, the title is Swirl Girl: Coming of Race in the USA. Swirl Girl: Coming of Race in the USA, and it's been out. It's been out since April. And it's published in, uh, independently, so I'm trying a new thing. I've been published traditionally before, but this is a new adventure. So you can get it on my website, which is my name, Stovall. one word, dot com. That's T-A-R-E-S-S-A-S-T-O-V-A-L-L dot com. Swirl Girl, coming to race in the USA. So that's teressastovall.com. I also have a blog that I resurrected now that I'm finished with the book called Black and Bluish, B L E W I S H, blackandbluish.com, where I spout my radical, rabble rising, racial stuff. <laughs> um, and on social, Facebook is Teresa Stovall, T A R E S S A Stovall, S T O V A L L. And Instagram and Twitter is at Teresa Talks, so at T A R E S S A T A L K S. Um, and those are my handles. I, I am venturing the baby boomer that I am slowly and cautiously over into the world of the Instagram. Yes. That's one of my things I'm like to do this this week. I'm like, oh my God, I got to start all over. You know, I love social media, believe it or not. I love di- I love the digital world. I love social media. So I'm excited about it. Um, yes, find me, follow me, and, and let's engage. You know, I like to engage with people in, just like Charmaine. I like to... I like to to know other people's stories. I I tell my story and I wrote this book, Ultimately Charmaine, to encourage other people to share their stories, whatever, you know, form works for them. Everybody doesn't have to write a book. Right. I mean, I I press record on my
0: podcast because of that exact same thing. Exactly. That's
1: awesome. And that's brilliant and much easier than reading a book. But also (laughs) uh, for people, it's much more consumable or consumer friendly. But, you know, my thing is, the world needs our voices, especially as people of color, any people of color, you know, and I use that as an inclusive term to, to include everybody, but that we of all people have to own our stories. We have to start owning our narratives. That's why I love that you do this show. We have to, you know, understand the, vo- the world
0: needs your voice and your views and your version mm-hmm. of the truth, right? I like the term for us, by us, about us yes we own the stories we tell the stories versus letting other people tell them for from our
1: perspective that's it that's why i love what you're doing and i love you and i can't wait to hopefully meet in person give you a hug if if that ever happens (laughs) in the world some kind of here's a virtual hug yes and thank you so yeah i'm excited about swirl girl charmaine i really appreciate this opportunity because again i ultimately told my story to inspire other people to tell theirs I think we need all of our stories I think that's what will
0: save us as hum- as humans I agree thank you again so thank you this has been delightful militantly mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me Charmaine Fury Music is by David Bogan, The One. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time-only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.